that thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, that saith in his heart, Who shall bring me down to the ground? Though thou exalt thyself as the eagle, and though thou set thy nest among the stars, thence will I bring thee down, saith the Lord. If thieves came to thee, if robbers by night, how art thou cut off? Would they not have stolen till they had enough? If the grape gatherers came to thee, would they not leave some grapes? How are the things of Esau searched out? How are his hidden things sought up? Last week I pointed out that there are two major divisions within this prophecy of Obadiah. And these divisions consist of verses 1 through 14. And within this first division of the uh, prophecy, the Lord pronounces the outpouring of his judgment and wrath upon Edom. Edom, of course, that refers to the offspring of Esau, as you are aware. And then verses 15 through 21, within this division, the, the second and last division of the prophecy, the day of the Lord or the final judgment and the future establishment of God's kingdom is foretold. Um, I remind you as well, and we did an overview of the book, as you recall, and just a few things to mention. First of all, Obadiah is the shortest of the old books of the Old Testament, only 21 verses, and it is, of course, one of the minor prophets, as you also should be aware. And as the minor prophets, I've said to you many times, they are referred to as the minor prophets in contrast to the major prophets, not because of the, not because the message is insignificant within or a minor message, but rather because of the length of the prophecies themselves. And so, of course, this is the shortest of all of those. And one of the unique things about Obadiah is that while the Lord throughout all of the Old Testament through the prophets pronounces judgment and wrath and warning, if you will, time and again, and he does so in, in so, many, so many cases, he does so against the heathen nations, but he also will uh, speak judgment or correction and chastening of Israel itself, of course, as his people when they are in rebellion. But in this case, in Obadiah, we find that the judgment of God is focused on Edom. It is focused throughout the entirety of the epistle. And the first whole portion of the epistle, or not epistle, I'm sorry, of the prophecy, is that it is that of, of judgment upon Edom. And we've looked a lot about that concerning that already in both the overview of the book and the introduction to the book on the last two weeks or last two studies of this uh, prophecy of Obadiah. And last week we observed several things of importance, and I'm just going to briefly go over a few of these from the first four verses of this prophecy. In verses 1 and 2, we considered first the meaning of the name Obadiah, which is servant of Yahweh or worshiper of Yahweh. And I told you again, the importance of this name is seen not only in the book itself, as we'll see in just a moment, but also in relation to understanding what the, the word worship and service mean throughout Scripture. Even as we have viewed in Hebrews throughout our theology class, uh, when in Hebrews chapter 9, when it speaks about the tabernacle having ordinances of, of divine service, the word service there is that of worship. It's not talking about working. It's talking about worship of God, divine worship of God. And so when it says servant of Yahweh, it is also referencing or meaning that he is a worshiper of Yahweh, the worshiper of God. The meaning of the word rumor we looked at last week as well, which means report, news, and revelation. So the word rumor is not used as we often believe it to be used or would use it today. It's not something that is, that is uh, secret in the sense of um, people are whispering behind other people's backs and it, there may be truth to it or there may, be not, or it may not be truth to it or it may be partial truth, meaning parts of it is, are true and yet parts of it are not. That's not what this is referencing at all, but rather the word rumor is used to convey the report 
or revelation of the news, and in this case, absolute or certain news. And then the meaning of the noun ambassador, messenger, and this is where the importance of Obadiah's name, the meaning of his name, servant of Yahweh and worshiper of Yahweh, uh, has, has significance in relation to the message that is given. To be a true messenger of God, because the word the noun ambassador means messenger, and to be a true messenger of God, one must first be a genuine worshiper of God. And yet if one is a genuine worshiper of God, then that means that they will be also a genuine messenger of God. And this is not only limited to people who are given the responsibility of shepherding a flock, though it's definitely absolutely true in that case. The fact of the matter is, as we are told in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17, 18, 19, and, and so on, that we are new creatures in Christ, right? If any man be a new creature, or if any man um, be in Christ, he's a, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away, behold, all things are become new, all things are of God. And, and it goes on to say that God has given unto us the word, uh, the ministry of reconciliation, and the word of reconciliation, and then it goes on to say that we are ambassadors for Christ. And so if you've been changed, if you've been made a new creature, been born again, then you are a, now a worshiper of God, which makes you an ambassador for God. But the only true ambassadors for God and messengers of God are those who are genuine worshipers of God. You cannot be one and not be the other. They just go hand in hand. 2 Corinthians five seventeen through 21 again to reference that truth. Verse 1 says, The vision of Obadiah, thus saith the Lord God concerning Edom, we have heard a rumor from the Lord, and an, and an ambassador is sent among the heathen. Arise ye, and let us rise up against her in battle. The Lord broadcasted the news through his messenger to stir the heathen nations to rise up against the people of Edom. And then in verse 2 he goes on to exp- uh, explain, Behold, I have made thee small among the heathen, thou art greatly despised. So again, reviewing from last week, God made them small among the heathen nations. This was foretold as well in other Old Testament books or prophecies also. In Numbers 24, 18 and 19 this is mentioned, and as well in Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. The same truth is explained. Then verses 3 and 4. The pride of thine heart hath deceived thee, thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, that saith in his heart, Who shall bring me down to the ground? Though thou exalt thyself as in the eagle, and though thou set thy nest among the stars, thence will I bring thee down, saith the Lord. Edom is not the only people who exalted themselves in pride. And we are reminded that man's heart is deceitful and full of pride. The noun pride means presumptuousness or overconfidence. And the verb deceived, it means to cheat or entertain false hope. The people were presumptuous and it allowed their own arrogance and self-confidence to give them a false hope of being invincible. Edom specifically, as indicated in the latter portion of verse 3, notice again, thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, that saith in his heart, who shall bring me down to the ground? What, what, an, what an arrogant statement, as though we... Anyone, and Edom in this case, they are, they, are, they are enlarged to the point or they are strong to the point that they say there is no one who can touch us. We are beyond being affected. We are beyond being um, brought down. We are beyond being humbled. We are, we are exalted. Again, I want to just briefly mention this, and this is not, as you know, I, I refuse to preach politics. I preach Christ. But there are things I read, especially through the prophecies, that sure remind me of things that go on today. And I would say to you that there is no nation that will ever stand the test of time. There is no power that will ever stand the test of time. 
apart from the kingdom of God and the kingdom of his Christ. And so the fact of the matter is, we as a nation are not invincible. We can be humbled and will be humbled. And all nations will be, all kingdoms will be, all powers will be. It will be. Again, just the arrogance of the statement or the question, who shall bring me down to the ground? <laughs> what, what, a, what an arrogant, proud statement or question to be asked or statement to be made. We are warned of the wicked deceitfulness of man's heart and imagination. In Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10, you remember the verses, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. So while the heart of man is so deceitful, and listen, when it says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, who can know it? That is not simply or only limited to saying that, oh, the sinfulness and depravity of man is beyond our very imagination. No, that is true. Who can imagine the depths of the depravity of mankind? But it's not simply saying that, though that is true. It is saying that your heart deceives you and that my heart deceives me and that I am not even capable of knowing the depths of the depravity of my own heart. And you do not know the depths of the depravity of your own heart. I mentioned last week, again, not an original statement from me by any means, but I mentioned to you last week, years ago, I heard this statement made and it kind of just stuck with me. That, and it's so true that we live in a day, and that was true years ago, and it's just as true now, and especially our young people being targeted, and parents giving their, their children this horrid advice of saying, just follow your heart. No, how about just following the Lord? <laughs> Not follow your heart. Your heart is deceitful. Your heart is wicked. And let me tell you something. Your heart will lead you in the wrong direction every single time. Without exception. So the Lord, however, as he says in verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins. The Lord not only knows the depths of the depravity within man's heart, but he will judge man. And the Lord will bring down those who have exalted themselves before him. And I want to mention this briefly, and we're still reviewing from last week, but this is important because we saw this in concluding last week. That in contrast to these, this arrogance and this pride of man and the absolute judgment of God upon the pride of man and man's pride within himself, we are also told in contrast uh, we are given God's promise regarding those who are humble before him. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. Psalm 51, 17, in David's psalm of contrition, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O oh God, that wilt not despise. In other words, he's saying that God will not mock, God will not scorn those who are broken and contrite before him. Isaiah 57, 15, For thus saith the high and lofty one, that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and revive the heart of the contrite ones. What, what wonderful promises that God has provided. He says, I am the high and and, and holy one. My name is holy. I, I dwell in the, in the lofty and high place but then he says, with those who be of a humble spirit and contrite heart. So within these verses, as we've read verses 4, 
I'm sorry, 5 and 6 this evening specifically. Obadiah now begins to explain the extent of the judgment of God upon Edom. As we will discover from these verses, Obadiah himself, as God's messenger of judgment upon Edom, is also overwhelmed by the extent of God's judgment. Verse 5. If thieves came to thee, if robbers by night, how art thou cut off? Would they not have stolen till they had enough? If the grape gatherers came to thee, would they not leave some grapes? Now, as we consider this portion of the text, we see both the devastation that would befall Edom in Obadiah's prophecy, yet we also see Obadiah's pity on those who would experience such judgment, although it was well-deserved. Verse 5, he says, If thieves came to thee, if robbers by night, how art thou cut off? Obadiah uses two descriptions, which at first glance may appear to be synonymous, yet is this, they're, they're not synonymous at all, and actually are being used to describe the progression of God's judgment upon the people. The word are noun thieves, it means to steal or deceive, or those who would steal and deceive. But the noun robbers means those who would devastate or deal violently with and to destroy. So the point Obadiah is making is that the judgment of God would be progressive and there would be those who deceived and then there would be those who destroyed Edom. As he will further describe within this prophecy. And then Obadiah exclaims, notice what he says, How art thou cut off? This statement really says all it needs to be said in relation to what Obadiah is communicating. The term cut off means destroyed. So he's saying, how you are utterly, certainly destroyed. And the manner in which Obadiah makes this statement seems to be an exclamation of awe or disbelief and even pity. As Obadiah further explains within the remaining portions of this verse. Look at verse 5 continuing. Would they not have stolen till they had enough? If the grape gatherers came to thee, would they not leave some grapes? Obadiah is expressing here the severity of God's judgment upon Edom. And would it not be reasonable to think that if one came to steal, that when they believed that they had received, stolen enough or, or gathered enough, that they would leave behind the rest? Or, or furthermore, when those who gathered the grapes had harvested the fruit, was it not the custom to leave behind grapes for the poor to gather, that there be something left behind for those who did not have to then receive? Such logic stems from the teaching of Scripture concerning harvest. In Deuteronomy 24, 21 and 22, When thou gatherest the grapes of thy vineyard, thou shalt not glean it afterward. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow. And thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in the land of Egypt. Therefore I commanded thee to do this thing. The Lord commanded the people to leave remnants behind for those who were destitute, such as the stranger. The stranger is not one who possesses a home. The stranger was not one who belonged. It was a sojourner, if you will, one who was just traveling through, one who was not of the household of faith, if you will, concerning the gathering here of the, of the harvest. And he's saying, leave some behind so that those who are struggling and those who do not have, that they might as well be provided for. Then he says, the widow and the fatherless also. So those who are strangers, those who, the, the remnants behind being left for those who were destitute is referencing those who were the strangers who owned nothing, those who were fatherless, who had no provider to provide for them, and the widow, the one who was left to fend for herself. 
The reason the Lord commanded such was not only for the well-being of those who were destitute, but also as a reminder that the Lord had blessed them by delivering them from the bondage of Egypt. Notice again what he says in verse 22 of Deuteronomy 24. And thou shalt remember. Okay, so when you gather your harvest, leave, you, you do the gathering and then leave behind the remnants. Why? Because there are strangers, those who own nothing. There are, there are those who are orphans, the fatherless. There are those who are widows without a husband. And he says, they need help. And so you leave behind the remnants for them that they might be provided for. But then he gives them a lesson and a reminder. And he says, and thou shalt remember. Do not forget this, that you were a bondman in the land of Egypt. You were without, you were destitute. You were not being provided for in that capacity. Remember where you were that you might be merciful to those who are as you were. Therefore, I command thee to do this thing, the Lord says. So the reason the Lord commanded such, again, was not only the well-being of those who were destitute, but also because he had blessed them by delivering from them from the bondage of, the, of Egypt. Yet Edom, see, here's, the, here's, what, here's what Obadiah is saying. That is what should have been. You remember uh, Ruth. Surely you remember when Boaz sees Ruth out there and, and Naomi tells Ruth, hey, go out to the field of Boaz and, and he is a kinsman unto me and go out and, 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 you know, glean what is left behind. Get the remnants that are left behind that we may have food to eat. And Boaz sees, if you recall, Ruth and he says, hey, 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 uh, you know, leave handfuls of purpose out there purposefully leave behind not just little remnants, but fruit to gather and to glean all that is necessary. And there you find the love and the mercy, if you will, of Boaz on this widow. That's what she was. She was a widow. And so we see that throughout Scripture and taught throughout Scripture. And yet Obadiah brings this up when he asks the question. and says, thieves, those who would deceive in order that they might gain and get from you. And then Robbers who want to just destroy. He says, but, but isn't it just logical to believe? And, and, and wouldn't you think that the, the thief would get some things and take them? Or the robber would even come and get as much as he could? But it's not as though he's going to come and, and take everything out of the house and then burn the house down. I mean, surely he's got to leave some things behind and at least leave the walls and the roof intact. But yet... Obadiah is saying, you're cut off. He's saying, Edom, you are destroyed under the wrath of God. Utterly destroyed. So Edom would be left without any provision, without any remnant, without any hope, and without any help. So it's no wonder Obadiah exclaimed, exclaimed, how art thou cut off? And here you have the messenger of God declaring the judgment of God upon a people who are under the wrath of God is foretold and explained throughout Scripture. And yet the messenger of God, knowing God is holy and just and right, and knowing that Edom deserves judgment, remembering that the people of Israel deserve the same judgment in reality, he exclaims, I believe, with great pity and absolute certainty that this people will be destroyed. And I think he does so, as did Paul, as I've mentioned in the past through Philippians, if you recall in our study, how that Paul mentions how that, he says, I've already warned you of these people, I've already warned you of these 
these false teachers and such. He says, and I now warn you again. And he, and he said, weeping I warn you. With tears I warn you. Here's, here's what I'm saying to you. Is even as the people of God, as you see an example of Obadiah here, the reality remains that while we declare the gospel, we live in the truth of the gospel unto and before a world that is. We've been given, again, the ministry, living out the gospel and the word of reconciliation, the, the proclamation of the gospel, both as ambassadors for Christ, meaning those who've been made new creatures, 2 Corinthians five seventeen through 21, that all ties in. And as ones who've been given the ministry and word of reconciliation, ambassadors for Christ, because we have been transformed and changed We do so recognizing that the world in which we live and all men deserve the wrath of God, deserve the judgment of God, and that once we were in the same place that they presently are under his wrath, but it's only by the goodness, the favor, the word we refer to as grace of God and the mercy of God and the love of God in Jesus Christ, that we are still presently not under the same condemnation, not under the same wrath. So how then could we possibly... Bear the message of reconciliation and live out the truth of reconciliation without having a heart of pity towards those to whom we minister the truth. Obadiah is saying, oh, how you're destroyed. And I believe he's overwhelmed. I do. I believe that he is viewing this truth, knowing this is God's word and knowing God is right. Not praying that God's will would be changed. God's will won't be changed. Nobody knows that, and every believer should realize that. But he still has a heart of pity towards those who, upon whom certain destruction is going to come. And I remind you again how we know that this is certain destruction because of the Lord's declaration of the hatred, his hatred for this people in Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Again, I remind you, in Acts chapter 9, where this, Paul says, as it is written... Um, he said, well, it, that the, the neither one having done good or evil, but that the purpose of God according to election might stand. It was, said of, it was said, the elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. And again, now we see that is a quote. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. That is a quote from Malachi chapter 1. And here you see the depths of this hatred which God pronounced and which Paul quotes. Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The burden of the word of the Lord unto Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, saith the Lord, yet ye say, wherein has I loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau. Now look at what God says. And I laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Whereas Edom saith, we are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, they shall build, but I will throw down. And they shall call them, Edom, the border of wickedness. And the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. And the word indignation means cursed. These are the people God hated Edom. And he cursed Edom and nothing was going to change that. And here Obadiah is testifying of God's judgment which is to come upon Edom as we see it did. And yet he does so being overwhelmed. Because these people are perishing. Rightfully they perish. Rightfully they are destroyed. Rightfully they are under God's judgment and wrath. But hear me, it is only God's mercy and grace that we are not in the same condition. Verse 6, 
How are the things of Esau searched out? How are his hidden things sought up? There are three exclamatory statements made here. The one is, notice in verse 5, when he says, How art thou cut off? Exclamation point. Then verse 6, How are the things of Esau searched out? How are his hidden things sought up? Again, two exclamatory statements. And the implication of these statements are searched out means ransacked or pillaged. So how the things of Esau are pillaged and ransacked. And how are his hidden things sought up, which means grazed bare. So as, if you would, cattle would come through and graze in the field, it's as though Esau's field is being absolutely wiped out. There is nothing left behind. They are desolate and destitute. Edom would have nothing left. They would be completely taken advantage of and left destitute. And Jeremiah as well prophesied of this truth. In Jeremiah 49.10, we read, But I have made Esau bare. I have uncovered his secret places, and he shall not be able to hide himself. His seed is spoiled, and his brethren and his neighbors, and he is not. Now, these are encouraging words, aren't they? And you read through this and you go, okay, well, that's pretty severe, isn't it? That's the whole point. Listen, you need to understand something. The judgment and wrath of God, the severity of the judgment and the wrath of God has nothing that can be compared. The extent of the wrath of God And the judgment of God cannot be compared to anything that man knows. And so we look at this, but let me remind you of something. This is the very message of the gospel. You say, what do you mean by that? Hear me. This is what's lost today in the so-called professed gospel that so many attempt to proclaim. People want to make the gospel alluring and appealing, but the bottom line is the gospel is offensive. And there's two aspects to the offense of the gospel. The first is this. Mankind is under the absolute certain impending judgment of God. And it's severe judgment, eternal judgment, eternal wrath. And man is not loved by God. The, man, the, the love of God manifested in Jesus Christ, 1 John. And God has commended his love toward us, Romans 5, but, or Romans 8. But the gospel, are, but we find that in reality that they are under the wrath of God. Romans 2, 5. And the impending judgment of God ready to be revealed at the righteous day of judgment. And the second part of the horror of the bad news preceding the good news is that there's nothing that you can do about this. You can't fix it. Now, here's the bottom line. You go tell someone, without Christ, you are under the wrath of God, the holy, certain, severe wrath of God. That's bad news. I'll tell you what's worse news. You can't do anything to fix it. And that's offensive. You know why? You know why we have so much religion in the world? Because men are continually trying to fix a problem they cannot fix. 
And so they are continually saying, I'll become righteous. I will make myself righteous. And what they're really arrogantly saying, as I've said to you many times, one day, here's Jesus, and one day I'm going to be just like him on my own. One day God will see me just like he sees his son. Uh, No. And so that's an offense to God, obviously. And we are under the wrath of God. And being under the wrath of God, the offense is that I am under this judgment and wrath that's waiting to be poured out like Romans 2.5 describes it in such a manner, as I've said many times, as though it's, it's a, the rain cloud gathering and gathering and gathering, waiting just, just to be dropped, the bottom be, just drop out and the bottom fall out. And then the wrath of God just pour out for all eternity upon those who are, who are without Christ. That's the impending judgment of God. And again, the further offense is you can't do anything to fix this problem. Again, the gospel, good news, is good news because of the bad news that precedes it. So when the wrath and judgment of God is poured out upon a people or a person, there is none who can stand. In Nahum 1, 2 through 7 we read, God is jealous and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebuketh the sea and maketh it dry and dryeth up all the rivers. Bashan languisheth and Carmel quake at him. The hills melt and the earth is burned at his presence. Yea, the world and all that dwell therein. Who can stand before his indignation and who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. That's pretty straightforward. But yet we see after the terribleness of God's judgment is declared and explained, we find a truth that is always present when the judgment of God is declared. While God's judgment is severe and to be feared, the goodness, mercy, and grace of God is to be celebrated. And in verse 7 of Nahum chapter 1, we just read Nahum 1, 2 through 6. Listen to the next verse. After saying, the mountains quake, the hills melt, the earth is burned. And and who can stand before his indignation? Who can abide in the fierceness of his wrath? His fury is poured out like fire and the rocks are thrown down by him. Verse 7, the Lord is good. (laughs) A stronghold in the day of trouble and he knoweth them that trust in him. How comforting is that? Here you have this terrible God, meaning to be feared, and judgment and wrath to be feared. In that sense, speaking terrible of his judgment and his wrath. And then the next statement is, the Lord is good. He's a good God. A stronghold in the day of trouble. We consistently find throughout Scripture that God's wrath and judgment toward and on the wicked, to be contrasted by God's goodness, mercy, and love upon those He has declared to be and made to be righteous in His Son. All those who trust in Him, for we who know Christ. As we looked in 1 John, if you recall through our study a few months back now, as we saw in 1 John through our study, how that there's two statements made in 1 John that are totally isolated in their context so often. And they're in the same chapter, chapter 4, in which John says, uh, for God is love and God is love. He doesn't just say God is love. For God is love, that's a, a, a 
That's a uh, conjunction, which is, of course, then uh, connecting to the previous statement, for God is love and God is love, another conjunction joining us to um, a previous statement. And what we see in both statements is John is talking to believers, saying, and those who are in fellowship with the Lord, and how that if we, if God, if, if we claim we love God and claim we love that he loves us and we are in him and he is in us, and yet we do not love our brother whom we physically see, he says that's impossible because God is love to those who know him. But hear me, God is not love to those who are under his wrath. God is to be feared and wrathful in judgment under those, uh, to those who are under his wrath. But to we who are believers, God is love. So while the world would see a terrible God to be feared greatly, we see a gracious God to be embraced and to be loved. And why do we love him? Because he first loved us. And so God is holy, God is terrible, again, greatly to be feared. Not terrible as in bad. There's no wickedness or sin in God. That's not the reference I'm, I'm making. I'm saying he is great and he is awesome and there is none to be compared to him. He's holy, he is set apart. And that his wrath and judgment is to be feared. But yet for we who trust in him, this judgment is proclaimed and wrath of God is being executed, we will say, the Lord is good. The Lord is gracious. The Lord is merciful. And we are not scared of him. But we stand in awe and reverence of him for who he is and what he has done. So, but I said, how art thou cut off? How you've been pillaged and ransacked or will be. How you will be utterly destroyed. And while he's given this message, I believe he himself is just overwhelmed by the truth of the wrath and the judgment of God, which will befall all of those who remain in unbelief. So as we carry forth the gospel, let us do so in humility, remembering that, yes, we minister the gospel to a people who deserve to perish. But they don't deserve to perish any more so than we deserve to perish. Look, that's a humbling thought. When you begin to realize that you are where you are only by the grace and goodness of God, and that's it, then it will change the way you minister to those who are under the wrath of God presently. Because we must remember that's where we are, were. I've got a friend of mine who says often, and I love this statement he makes, he says, we are just beggars telling other beggars where we found bread. And that's what we are. We're no different than they except for the fact that we've received the bread of life. And now we are telling them, hey, we know where the bread of life is. <laughs> we know where there is eternal hope and life and certainty in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you.